Good morning. No, it's odd. I see all the little red muted microphones and mine not. And still, it's sort of hard to believe that I'm talking and you're all hearing me, but I'll trust it. Zephyr, hello. It's been a long time. Dojin and Corin's last talks were both about transformation, and I want to continue the theme. It may feel especially pertinent now in this time of social and economic crisis and the homestay order, but it's always pertinent because we and all of life and the universe are always changing, always transforming. When we speak of impermanence, this is the reality of endless change. And so it is the reality of endless transformation. And we have deep feelings and, and ideas about this. And we have resistance and eagerness. And we have some agency to direct or engage actively with transformation. What the present circumstances provide is a, a kind of pressure cooker or special opportunity, perhaps. You either take active steps or you get squeezed. Steps towards clarity and relieving suffering in the world. And equally, steps toward awakening and peace inside. And they are not two separate worlds. So my focus today is Zen as transformative practice. So whether we practice Zen or not, the world is endlessly transforming and we are too, whether we want to or not. The Buddha Dharma is about intentional transformation in accord with a great view of reality. There's an American scholar uh, who wrote about a choice we have in Dharma practice in the West, she was speaking of, a choice between translating and transforming. It was a cautionary tale, she told. She said, a practice of translating just maps the Buddha Dharma onto familiar concepts and fits it into your life as you already know it. Whereas transformative practice changes you. I didn't encounter this whole idea until I first became a student of Katagiri Roshi about 40 years ago. He was then in Minneapolis and I was living in my cabin in the woods in the Berkshire Mountains in New England. And when I first became a student and went home again, he wrote me a card, a note that I've kept with me ever since. He wrote, Faith and bodhicitta bring us together to walk hand and hand in peace. Let us swim continuously in the vast expanse of ocean, not in a small world. Even though you string yourself up to put the vastest of ocean into the small world, it is impossible to do so. Swim in the ocean and the small world joins you of itself, even if you try not. This is a duty of my student. Okay. That was that. Well, for years or decades, maybe, I didn't understand what he was talking about. I'm not given to 
metaphor, naturally. And sometime later, he said, don't try to put the Dharma into your life. Put your life into the Dharma. And that's, I think, when it started to open up for me. If you pick out a bit of this beautiful Buddha Dharma and find a nook for it in your life, it's like hanging a beautiful picture or a tanka on your wall. You can admire it. You can even be slightly changed by it, but it isn't you. Or it's like a detached mindfulness practice that can truly help you be calm, but it doesn't show you what you don't know about yourself or others. It doesn't lead you into a larger world. And you can't put the whole of the Dharma into your life. Am I messing this up? As, as Katagiri Roshi said, if you try to put the vastness of ocean into your small world, it is impossible to do. So putting yourself into the Dharma, this is his saying, swim in the ocean and the small world joins of itself. And this requires surrendering your idea uh, that you know how things are, that like and dislike are the basis of who you are. You have to loosen your grip on your views, your prejudices, and your false sense of security. To do, you have to do that to open your arms, to open your heart, to open your mind for the ocean of Dharma. And then you find that the ocean of Dharma has plenty of room for you. Uh, Dogen wrote an essay called Zenki, or Undivided Activity, that is about this, about the functioning of this total reality we call Dharma. The total functioning of reality, including you, was his special theme here. He said, life is just like sailing in a boat. They're all got a lot of water images, don't they? Just like sailing in a boat. You raise the sails and steer. You maneuver them, the sails and the oars and the, and the steering. But it's the boat that gives you a ride. And without the boat, you couldn't ride. Also, as you ride in the boat, your riding makes the boat what it is. Without you, it's just a bit of wood floating in the sea. When you ride in a boat, your body, your mind, the sea, the shore, the wind, all together are the undivided activity of the boat. The entire earth and the entire sky are both the undivided activity of the boat. You have some agency in this. You steer and you trim the sails and you learn to jibe and come about, but never detached, isolated, or total. You trim the sails to work with the wind that's already blowing. You steer to stay afloat and, and to stay moving on in your ongoing life. Dogen says, life is like this just like sailing in a boat. We make life and life makes us. But life in general doesn't exist. Life is always 
particular. Our particular boat, our particular companions, the particular winds of the day. Our whole life and whole activity, our constant interplay of sailing in different winds, with different companions, with different levels of skill. And Zazen is like this. It's a very pared down boat. It's a way of seeing and living this clearly. So in Zazen, you sail your life, dealing with wind and water, with body and mind, all together living out undivided activity. This undivided activity is wholehearted practice, different words for the same thing. So Zen has been called the wholehearted way, a way of investigating life and taking step after step after step moving through the ocean of life. We're small, limited in capacity, in attention, in heart. But it is just because we have these small bodies that we can act, investigate life, reach out, and love. So wholehearted is a name for transformative practice, for you, for the boat, for the wind and water. It's a dancing and suffering and celebrating. We're made of each other and changing each other. Constant, undivided activity. It isn't one size fits all. As Dogen says, he says, the undivided activity of life and death is like a strong young person flexing and stretching her arm as she works. Or it is like a person asleep at night, groping with a hand, reaching for the pillow. Sometimes conscious and planned, sometimes moved by life. All of this is practice realization. It's hard not to be caught by the pressures and constraints of your life. It's hard to see beyond the horizon of your thoughts. It seems, as I said, that what you see is what there is. We're trained to believe that our senses and the mind that interprets them gives us a complete picture. In Dogen's Genjo Koan, he expresses this by saying, once again, taking a boat out, he says, when you'd go out in a boat far from shore, the sea looks round, though the shore is actually infinitely varied. So how to see beyond your established view? How to change when you can't see where you're going or know where you're going? How do we even know there's a beyond this? What Katagiri Roshi called the vast expanse of ocean, not a small world. In Genjo Koan, Dogen says, when the, Dharma feel, fills, when the Dharma fills you, you feel something is incomplete. We're by nature incomplete. We're limited, we're living and dying. We're small beings. And we are by nature part of the vast world. Not even in a sense part, we are, each and every one of us, the vast world. 
whether we understand it or not. Mostly not, perhaps. So it's not that you have to leave your pond uh, like a fish struggling on land to wiggle across to a bigger pond. You're always in the sea, always in the ocean. It's just a failure of our view. And because of that, of that failure of our view, it's a failure of our actions because we act as though we were living in a small muddy puddle. Corin spoke eloquently last week about meeting life in the small puddle, the, the life where we are faced with the destructive forces of fear, of hatred, of clinging. They feel very big, but they are the life in the small pool where there doesn't seem to be enough room for all of us. So our path is on the one hand, untangling these forces so that we can act in ways that heal. And on the other hand, it's about seeing deeply into the causes of this, meeting them fully so we can unhook from their pernicious beliefs and effects. And it's through this seeing deeply that we transform the very ground of our life, of our mind, of our heart. As I thought about transformative practice, I thought about Alice Jean. Uh, some of you, at least, have read. She posted. She started this care, uh, joined this Caring Bridge website, and she only posted, as far as I know, once, one time last year. Her post was titled "Be the Goo." In case any of you remember this, she wrote, "I am in awe of life." this being alive, no words. My quiet motto this year has been be the goo. Until recently, I didn't know that this is actually an official word for the disintegration of the caterpillar on its way to becoming a butterfly. I thought it just would be a good word for it. Be the goo. Allow the disintegration. Rest in the not knowing, trust in the unfolding. In this cocoon of living with sarcoma, my previous caterpillar self is transforming, she said. And some days I feel I have already become the butterfly. Still the transformation continues. There is more every day, learning about resilience, acceptance, the strength and fragility of this body, Deep surrender, the capacity of this human heart, life energy, and co-creating with the universe. And it has not been alone. The felt knowing that you are my loving circle is always present with me. This analogy of butterfly transformation, human transformation, it's a great one. And it isn't just going from caterpillar to goo to adult. Once the caterpillar enters its pupa, this is 
the old scientists talking, the old entomologists. The enzymes that the caterpillar used to digest leaves now digest its own tissues inside the case into goo. So it's a cache of nutrients that the insect draws on in her transformation in the cocoon or chrysalis as it develops into the adult form called the imago. So how does this transformation from goo into butterfly or fruit fly take place? So back when it was a caterpillar, there were a set of bags or discs called imaginal discs inside the caterpillar under its skin, several of them on each side. These tiny discs or bags contain groups of cells that are already the rudiments of the legs and antennae and thorax and abdomen that are going to be in the adult. So when the caterpillar enters the chrysalis, these discs expand, drawing on the nutrients of the goo and become the various parts of the adult. And when that process is complete, it breaks out of the pupa. So in a butterfly, the imaginal discs provide a bridge, kind of a how-to manual, and a starting position for transformation. People are much less dependent on pre-programming in every way. The DNA, that is the source material or source manual for the insect's transformation, offers people something different. Our DNA provides us with brains, with consciousness, and, a deep, and with deep social connections, all of which we need for the intentional transformations that are the hallmark of humanity. So as a butterfly needs imaginal disks for its transformation into adulthood, we need curiosity and imagination for intentional transformation a little courage as well, and each other. So in our transformations, like moths, we do not become a different being, but a different form of this being. Now, some transformation, of course, will happen in us willy-nilly. We move from birth uh, through life to death naturally. But transformative practice is intentional transformation. And yet not forced. You can't tell yourself what to do. That isn't it. It takes imagination to envision change and to envision yourself changing. Because we are very uh, fixed on our current form. So much so that we don't really see ourselves aging and are surprised when we look in the mirror and find ourselves uh, 10 years older than the last time we think we looked. So it takes imagination and curiosity to envision loosening your grip on how you see things now, on your beliefs about what is possible, when, what is likely. And that bit of courage it's much needed for stepping forward into what you don't understand and can't grasp hold of.
And we can't do it alone. None of us. So how do we do transformative practice? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What are our tools? Attention. Attention is a primary tool for making our awareness intentional, not just a haphazard flow. In fact, we use the word awareness to, to imply that it's intentional, not just unfocused, drifting, and not really seeing. Because uh, the haphazard flow, going with the flow, leads to an overturned boat. It doesn't work. You have to attend to the present conditions. Remember I used to talk about canoeing in a river and how you have to know the currents and work with the currents or you will be overturned by the force of the river. You have to attend to the present conditions, outer and inner. You have to find ways to make sense of these conditions. And that's tough because we've made sense. The sense we've made in our life takes a limited range of circumstances into account. And we kind of settle with that. And so then we have to block out things that don't fit that model we've got because it will destroy our sense of sense, of meaning. And yet we have to keep expanding. The universe is changing and the circumstances are changing with, no matter what we want. So we have to find ways to have permeable boundaries that are permeable, senses of meaning that are permeable, that have coherence and yet are constantly changing. It's not easy. So the Dharma is exactly that. It's a way to make sense of the endless complexity of life. And it's a way to practice based on the Dharma. Well, Dharma offers us teachings and then the practice. The teachings are always large enough to help us enlarge our view. And when the things get chaotic, there's a way to return to our sense of Dharma to reorganize. It's there as a overarching meaning and coherence. And our practice based in the Dharma means making that sense or meaning alive here and now in yourself as yourself. And that kind of attention, attention to what is inside and outside, to what is going on, naturally, it takes the form of concern and caring. Concern is essential. When we don't know that there's anything we can do, we can be concerned. And that is saying, I am here and I care and I pay attention. And something comes from that if we don't lose heart with it. So as wisdom is is it's the is the ground of our knowing our meaning it's the ground of our compassion and compassion in turn is the enactment of wisdom and so compassion 
enlarges our wisdom as wisdom enlarges our compassion. And we lose track of that, and it's always there to return to. We return, it hasn't gone away. But also our speedy, our frenetic and creative minds are always weaving meanings and stories and values and wishes and desires and illusions. And on our own, we can only do a little. We need culture. We need teachings, traditions, and other people and other forms of life to do more than paddle in our own little mud puddle. And it turns out that many animals have cultures and traditions which help them thrive. Chimps, whales, parrots, elephants, and many others have cultures. Different tribes of chips have different cultures and different traditions. And the same is true of the whales and the elephants. And actually, all animals have to learn how to become themselves. What's good to eat? Where and when something is ripe? If you're a chimp, a bush baby, the little they're the tiniest little um, uh, primate. The little nocturnal primate looks like a tiny little nakedish, almost brown thing with great big eyes. It's about that big. Uh, and for a chimp, it's dinner. They they tend to live in in holes in trees and in logs. And so the chimp takes a sharpened stick. It has a tool and it pokes it down into the hole that it hopes there's a bush baby in, takes the stick out, sniffs it to see if there's any blood on it to know whether it's got a bush baby, and then it can reach in and take the bush baby. Gorillas have a different relationship with bush babies. Gorillas being largely vegetarian or maybe entirely uh, don't see the bush baby as lunch. So there is a, a small video on YouTube. And if you, if you Google gorilla bush baby, you get to see this huge, Dojin is smiling, she's probably seen this, a huge silverback gorilla uh, in, a, in an enclosure in Africa, in the Cam Cameroon, and with other gorillas in some kind of a refuge place. And a little bush baby crawls in, in daylight, crawls into this huge gorilla who picks it up. Now, the bush baby is about the size of the gorilla's finger. And the gorilla looks at this bush baby and looks at the bush baby and then sits the bush baby on his body and lets the bush baby crawl all around and then lies down and the bush baby crawls all around the gorilla and then he picks it up again and looks at it. And then a young gorilla comes over and examines it. And then the gorilla takes the bush baby in his hands and escorts it out of the enclosure. Cultures and traditions and choices. Anyway, that's my favorite video of the week. Where was I? So all animals, like, just like us, have to learn how to become themselves, what to avoid, how to get along with others, how to communicate. It's not all innate, although the potential for it is inborn. The potential to become you as you are now, me as I am now, the, the potential to fulfill ourselves as humans is in us. We need each other intentionally. That's Sangha. 
the society of people working with Dharma to fill their human capacity, working with this cultural tradition. Now, we each inhabit several different cultural traditions. This is one of the cultures that we inhabit and that we we can be informed by throughout our entire life, as with all of our strong cultures. We need the teachings that this cultural tradition brings us through people. <coughs> this is our tradition carried on through many generations. And we need Buddha or awakening practice, the intentional practice of letting go of our clenched fists of our cultural traditions, including what we think the Dharma is and who we think we are and what we think it means to be an American and all of that, or to be a woman or to be a man. The intentional practice of letting go of the clenched fists of delusion, of greed, of hatred. Letting go of the opposition and separation that we usually base our lives on. Seeing past that without then setting up a new fantasy of how it's supposed to be. Because that's what we tend to do. We meet the Dharma and we say, oh, there's a better way of how it's supposed to be. That's not what the Dharma is offering us. It's offering us a huge cultural tradition and a wisdom we call it tradition of, of how to progress in life. So don't worry that you can't see yourself transforming. We have to let go of our ideas of what that should look like and how long it should take. Uh, let go of your idea of sudden transformation, like sudden enlightenment. It's not like that for moths. It's not like that for us. And why should it be? That's a romantic notion. And we are welcome to have and enjoy our romantic notions, but we need to know that that's what they are. They can be inspiring. Romantic poets are inspiring. And we need to let go also of our sense of inadequacy. Some insufficiency is natural and inevitable in living limited beings. And we need to feel the pangs of that, like the regret that reminds us not to make that mistake one more time, although we may. We also need not to be burdened by our sense of insufficiency. Be insufficient and continue. That's our human life. This combination is essential to transformative practice, which continues your whole life. You don't get finished, like graduating from finishing school. Our agency finishes when we die, but the impact of our life isn't finished even then. What does it look like? How do you do transformative practice? I can't give you a map because it wouldn't be your map or your path. It's individual and comes from both within yourself and from without, from your life circumstances, your history, and what's around you. 
my own map is a more terrain than road. It's more mountains and and swamps and valleys and rivers. And it's full of, oh, it's been folded and unfolded so many times that it's worn and stained. It's full of crossing out and revisions. It's hard for me to read in places and it's incomplete. So I can't offer you a map. Mine wouldn't serve you. What I can offer is encouragement, a little guidance, and company. And it's not just I who offer that. In the Dharma, Sangha means that we each offer that to each other. Encouragement, a little guidance, and company. It's important to know Maybe believe, maybe trust and examine so the trust becomes no. To know or trust that like moths, the ground of transformation is already in you as you. It's our choice to make of our life an investigation of how to live. With many stumblings, some blind alleys, and with hope in the form of a sense of direction not a goal, there aren't a lot of guideposts, but we can have a sense of direction. And this Uchiyama Roshi said late in his life that he feels he's going in the right way with his practice because he's going in the right direction of continuing his practice. And each of us develops from where we each are, paying attention, and not being too afraid to look, uh, for which we need each other, because alone I think we would tend at some point be too afraid to look. Oh, so that over and over again, we can open our mind, open our heart, let go of our views and prejudices, letting the Dharma guide us, connecting with each other, connecting with life, and letting all of them guide us. Each one, each person, and each moment, a unique flowering with its own unique obstacles. So as as Katagiri Roshi pointed out, you don't shed your small self. You don't leave it behind. It joins you of itself in the large world of Dharma, changed by the enlarged world it finds itself in. Because this small self is the self of my feelings, my understanding, my wish to change and grow. Those come from this small self, this personal, shall we say, self. You can't shed it, nor should you, should you want to. So put yourself into the Dharma is a way of describing this transformative practice. What it means to me is going in the direction of living on the ground of Dharma, basing my values and actions in the deepest way I can with the guidance of the Dharma teachings, the Sangha, all of you, and this awakening practice. 